You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. Our guest today is the director of the American Association for the Advancement of Science program of Dialogue on Science, Ethics, and Religion, also known as Dozer. She is also an astrophysicist studying the formation of stars and planetary systems using radio, optical, and infrared telescopes. She studied physics for her bachelor's degree at MIT, discovering comet Wiseman Skiff in 1987. After earning her PhD in astronomy from Harvard University in 1995, she continued her research as a Jansky Fellow at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory and as a Hubble Fellow at the Johns Hopkins University. She also has an interest in national science policy and has served as an American Physical Society Congressional Science Fellow. She has worked with several major observatories and is currently a senior astrophysicist at the Goddard Space Flight Center. She is also a public speaker and author and enjoys giving talks on the inspiration of astronomy and scientific discovery to schools, youth, and church groups and civic organizations. She's a fellow of the American Scientific Affiliation and a former counselor of the American Astronomical Society. We are very excited to welcome Dr. Jennifer Wiseman to the show today. Thank you. It's my pleasure to join you. So, um, Jennifer, again, thank you for agreeing to come and talk. We just, um, you know, we've met, uh, you and I met several years ago. I know that you and Zach know each other as well. Um, And so we kind of wanted to start off with what got you into astronomy and then how did that grow to include your science and religion work as well? I grew up out in a rural area in Arkansas on a family farm. And so I was just surrounded by nature growing up. Uh, uh, we lived in a pretty area that had nearby lakes and rivers. Uh, so I enjoyed everything about the natural world. I, we had animals of our own, uh, livestock and pets, but also lots of wildlife that I enjoyed seeing. And then I also enjoyed just wandering around meadows and streams and uh, you know, swimming and, and kayaking and all those kinds of things. And, and that made me appreciate the natural world. We also had dark night skies when I was growing up. So we could go out at night and see stars from horizon to horizon. And that is such a rare treat these days. Most people live in cities or suburbs and, and have stray light from parking lots and stores and streets that create a glow in the sky and really drown out a lot of the beauty of seeing stars, unfortunately. But I was able to see the night sky. Um, we would go on evening walks, my parents and dogs, and 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 I would uh, enjoy these these regular walks. And I would imagine what it was like to to go up where the stars are. And I would I was curious. Um, so I think that started me out just being naturally curious about nature. And then um, science was. A, a, a kind of a natural affinity then because science is basically the formal study of how nature works. And uh, I had good teachers in my public schools who encouraged me in all kinds of subjects, science, mathematics, but also humanities and music. But all of that together, I think, was the foundation. And then pair that with, uh, as I was growing up, there was a lot of flurry of interest about space exploration. The the Voyager spacecraft were just sending the first images back to Earth of moons around planets in our solar system, close-up views we'd never had before. I just thought this was fascinating. Um, And, you know, a lot of science fiction like Star Wars movies and things were starting to come out in the late 70s and 80s, and I was caught up in that too. So there was a lot of social interest in space, um, as well as my own natural affinity for nature and all of that together, I think set the foundation for my interest in doing something related to the space program, but I, I didn't have a clue as to how to get involved in it. But thankfully I had teachers and encouraging family and church that just encouraged me to go on and try anything I wanted. So I went on to study science. Hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah. 
There's a lot to take away from that. One of the things I love the most is you referred to Star Wars, and I'm a huge <laughs> Star Wars fan, so thank you for that. Uh, I knew Ian would our... latch onto that. We've we've <laughs> spent quite some time on this podcast talking about the value of science fiction and how it implants um, this sorts of love of cosmos and love of the world into people into children's minds, and so they grow up to yeah. do great things. Yeah, exactly. So, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> sorry, Ian, walking all over you. So I, I'm. I hear you say that there was a lot of support um, from family, from um, from friends and teachers, and and even church. Did you get any of that uh, that sort of feeling that science and and God are at odds that so many young Christians did as they're growing up? Did you taste any of that, or was it all supportive? I never had any sense that there should be some kind of conflict between science and faith. In fact, quite the opposite. I grew up again in a in a place where nature just surrounded us. It was a rural area. We people had farms or they enjoyed recreation on the lakes and rivers and it was pretty. And so we just uh naturally correlated the beauty of the natural world with our faith in our love for God, because we understood that God is the creator and God is responsible for um, the creation and, and called it good. So I think at a very basic level, there there really wasn't any sense of conflict, quite the opposite, that science was the study of of God's handiwork, and we should be grateful for that. Now, when it came to the particulars, like how do you interpret the opening verses of the biblical um, book of Genesis uh, that seems to stipulate that all of creation came into being in, in a few literal days and those kinds of things. You know, I think we we probably took that rather literally in church and so forth. We didn't have any reason not to. Um, uh, but I think I was also given a sense of um, humility that our pastors and things would would tell us that God doesn't give us all the details in, in scripture that, that he's given us just enough for what we need to know to have a relationship with God. But, but he's also given us minds and, and other tools and, and giving us more knowledge as time goes on. And so I, I think even though, um, I was probably schooled in, in a more literalistic view of scripture growing up, I was also given a sense of humility that there might be more to it than just what is more to, to more information that that God will give us than just what's written in scripture. So I think that enabled me as I began to learn more about the scientific picture of the the, the vast size and age of the universe and the development of life, I was able to correlate that with a, a, a humble view of scripture that God didn't give us all these details in scripture, but delights in us using scientific knowledge to learn some of these rich details. And wow, are they rich? I mean, the universe is not small. It's enormous beyond our wildest imaginations, both in space and time. And I think that's something that fascinates me the most about astronomy is that it is a time machine. We can use telescopes to see out, and that is equivalent to seeing back in time. It's taken time for the light to get to us from either planets in our solar system or other stars or distant galaxies, and we can see how the universe has changed over time by looking back in time to distant objects in space. So I, I, I think what I did pick up growing up in terms of attention is more of a philosophical tension. I remember watching my favorite program on television, which was the Cosmos program, um, which was a wonderful exploration of the universe. And I really admire Carl Sagan to this day. I'm so grateful for how he um, opened my eyes to uh, the, the mysteries of the solar system and the universe beyond and introduced me to these images coming from the Voyager probes of the outer solar system, things like that. But every once in a while, he he and some other um, well-spoken scientists would interject some philosophical opinions and things that were 
kind of denigrating toward religion or religious faith. And I picked that up even as a, as a teenager and as a child. I couldn't quite articulate it, but I even then could sense that while I loved the science, I didn't like some of the kind of um, dismissive comments I was hearing about religious faith. And I, I, you know, I just kind of put, tucked that away in my mind, kind of puzzling uh, why does there have to be some kind of, of denigration of faith when you're talking about the majesties of science? And, and then, of course, as I became an adult and a scientist, I realized um, that there is, of course, a strong difference between what the science is telling us about the natural world and how it works and human philosophical interpretation of which there can be different opinions and, and trying to separate, you know, what, what is the science telling us from what are the different human interpretations of what the natural world is telling us about human purpose and meaning and even our beliefs in God and purpose. Uh, and I'm able to do that much better as a, as an adult scientist and to see where that line falls than I think a lot of folks um, in the public may be prepared for when they hear a scientist kind of crossing the line between talking about just the science and expressing uh, personal philosophical mm. views. But I think you do so with um, the same sort of humility, like it spills over from from your study of astronomy into your into your religion and philosophy, that like you study the stars and you see the unbelievable bigness and you just you can't help but let that spill over into everything that, well, why would I know everything about philosophy? Why would I know everything about God? That's absurd. I don't even know everything about our solar system. Um, there's like a certain humility. I think that comes from, uh, from when you're really into, into that kind of science that, um, I appreciate. I think, I think astronomy makes me a better Christian or at least more of a mystical one anyway. I think what astronomy does for me is not, uh, you know, sort of prove God or something like that. I, I think it's very hard to take something from the natural world and use it to prove or disprove something that isn't confined to just the natural observable world. But what it does do, being a person of faith as I am, is enrich that faith. I mean, I, I believe in, in God as the creator and sustainer of the universe and when I learn more about what that universe is like, that means that my reverence for God is much deeper. Um, I mean, it's almost scary when you think about the ages of time we're talking about in terms of our own universe. And there may be other universes, too, that we don't even know anything about. Um, and yet we read in Scripture that the same God who's responsible for this 13.8 billion years of the universe and its content and its evolution is also concerned with the lives of us and of the sparrow, you know, of, of, the, of the individual, what we would call insignificant life in terms of time and space. And yet God chooses to call us significant um, because of God's own choosing and love. And so it's that kind of you know, the infinitely large almost and the infinitely small almost that God encompasses that's very hard for me to comprehend, but it does deepen my my reverent fear and my appreciation um, for the kind of God that, um, that we read about in Scripture and that we experience as people mm -hmm. of faith. So, you are the director of the American, the American Association for the Advancement of Science Program of Dialogue on Science, Ethics, and Religion, which is a huge mouthful, um, which is AAAS Dozer, you know, for those who like acronyms, um, which is an organization that I think every single one of our listeners, like if you, if you subscribe to this podcast, then this is an organization that you would be interested in in learning more about, but I would wager to guess that a lot of them have never heard of it. Um, can mm -hmm. you tell us a little bit about what you do and what the organization does and uh, what kind of resources are available or how they can connect? Sure. Okay. So, so the, 
the world's largest scientific society is the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And that organization does exactly what it sounds like. AAAS advances science for the good of people around the world. Uh, So AAAS publishes a journal, scientific journal called Science, that many uh, have heard of or even written scientific articles for. AAAS also advocates the good use of science in society. So uh, AAAS has public education programs and programs helping legislators to see how science is beneficial to uh, people in all walks of life. AAAS sponsors programs to advocate science for advancing human rights and to work with different uh, components of society to make sure science is being used to the benefit of all people. One of those programs is this dialogue program called the Dialogue on Science, Ethics, and Religion, or DOSER. Um, it's, uh, you can find out about it by uh, the website, aaas.org slash DOSER, D-O-S-E-R. DOSER was uh, thought up back in the 1990s when scientists realized that to really be effective in communicating with people, we needed to understand how important religion and faith is in people's lives. And if we're really going to interface with um, different communities, especially in the U.S., we need to recognize that people's faith identity is a very important part of their worldview. Most people um, identify with a religion or a religious tradition as an important aspect of their identity and how they get a lot of their sense of values and worldview, including how they see the world and hear and um articulate science and its use in their lives and work and ministries and so forth. So if scientists are not understanding of the importance of religion and faith in the lives of most people, and if they're not able to articulate science in a way that brings people on board and and listen to the values of people from faith communities, then scientists are really missing a huge chance of understanding the value of science and how it can be incorporated into the lives of our culture. So the DOSER program was invented back in the 1990s to start building those relationships between scientists and religious communities. These are religious communities of all faiths and scientists of any faith or no faith, but building a dialogue uh, about how science is important in the lives of of people in our culture. Today, the DOZER program is very active. We have several projects. One of them, uh, I think uh, uh, you guys are particularly uh, knowledgeable about, is our Science for Seminaries project, where we work with um, seminaries from across the country and even beyond the U.S. um, that are interested in in incorporating good science into the training of future pastors and congregational leaders because science is a part of everyone's life today. So if a church wants to serve the world in the most effective way, they need to know how to incorporate science into their ministries. If they want to be relevant to our culture, especially for young people, they need to understand the role of science. It's not just the old arguments about science and, and, and creation and evolution. A lot of people, when they think about science and religion, they immediately wonder if there's some kind of, of argument about how old the, the world is. And, and, you know, there are still some very interesting questions, of course, about how did life come into being and so forth. But most faith communities now are really much more excited about talking about many other aspects of science as well, like space exploration. Could there be life beyond Earth or or more practical things, how do we incorporate good science into ministries to the poor or helping people around the world have better food, better, uh, cleaner water? How do we get the best science incorporated into the best healthcare practices? I mean, this has, of course, come to the forefront during this pandemic with COVID-19 and trying to understand the science of vaccinations 
and the social reality of distributing vaccines and getting people to understand and, and trust uh, the science enough to become protected as best we can against the terrible disease. So all these aspects are, I think, invigorating a, a, a dialogue between faith communities and scientists. And our DOZER program really seeks to bring scientists and faith communities into better relationship and contact. And of course, these are overlapping communities. I mean, a lot of scientists themselves are people of faith from various faith traditions. Um, but even scientists who are not, are not, uh, for the most part, are not hostile to faith communities. They just need a better architecture for building dialogue and relationship. In fact, most scientists already, of course, are interfacing with people of faith, whether they know it or not. The students in their classrooms, uh, people in their labs, and so forth. And so we also hold workshops for scientists at scientific society meetings um, and at research universities to help scientists better understand the important role that faith plays in the lives of many, probably most people in the U.S., if you look at the polls, and how to make sure that they are incorporating a respect for that uh, faith component of people's lives when they're talking about science in their classrooms and, and in their interface with people in their public spheres of influence. Not just to help welcome people into science, but also to help people see how science is relevant to the values they already have. So um, I'm curious if we can shift a little bit. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, I mentioned in your bio that you did have done some work with Hubble, uh, the Hubble Space Telescope, and you know, we this is going to be or this is being released hopefully in the same day that the new, uh, the next generation space telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope, will be launched, and so. Can you talk to us a little bit about your work with the Hubble Space Telescope and then maybe the distinction between Hubble that you know a lot of people know about and the new one, the James Webb Space Telescope, and what your hopes are for that? I've had the privilege of working with many different types of telescopes throughout my astronomical career. Uh, my own research is based on th the use of radio telescopes, which are these big dish-shaped telescopes. My doctoral research used an array of them out in New Mexico called the Very Large Array or the VLA. In fact, you can drive out there and see the Very Large Array southwest of Albuquerque. And uh, with these kinds of telescopes, I've been able to study how stars form in interstellar clouds. You can peer in through the dust and see some of these regions where infant stars are forming. I've also used and worked with the Hubble Space Telescope, which is a platform that's now become very famous. Hubble is a, is a satellite orbiting the Earth. It's not very far above the Earth, just a little over 300 miles above the surface of the Earth, but it's up there to get it above the clouds so you can get a much clearer image of objects in deep space, whether you're observing planets or stars or distant galaxies. And, and Hubble has been operating for almost 32 years now, uh, thanks to uh, repeated visits from astronauts that have kept the observatory uh, functioning uh, by replacing cameras from time to time and, re and repairing electronics. So, so the, the observatory is in very good shape. Um, we're recording this discussion right now in mid-December, looking forward to next week, what we're anticipating as a, it's the launch of another very large space telescope called the James Webb Space Telescope, named after a NASA administrator who was a, a science supporter back in the Apollo years. This telescope will be every bit as good as Hubble in terms of getting beautiful images of space, but it will also be different from Hubble because it will be very sensitive to infrared wavelengths of light. The Hubble telescope sees visible light like our eyes can see, and even energetic light that's bluer than blue, ultraviolet which is emitted from energetic processes in galaxies and in regions where stars are forming. Hubble can even see a little bit into the infrared part of the spectrum of light. So that's a little redder than red, which helps us to see 
somewhat into these interstellar clouds I mentioned where stars are still forming and planets are forming and to see very distant galaxies because as we look out into distant space, light from very distant galaxies has taken millions, sometimes billions of years to get to us. And as it's traveling through expanding space, that light uh, loses some of its energy. It gets shifted into what we call the, the, the reddened part of the spectrum. It's red shifted because it's stretched, the, the wavelengths of light. We can think of it as being stretched as they pass through expanding space to get to our telescope. And so uh, some of those galaxies, even though the light started its trip as blue light from stars, it ends up being infrared light when we receive it here. Hubble can see some of those very distant galaxies, which we're seeing as they were very far back in time when they were just infant galaxies. But some of those galaxies, that light is redshifted even beyond what Hubble can see in this new Webb Space Telescope will see infrared light much farther into the infrared part of the electromagnetic spectrum than Hubble can see. So the Webb Telescope will be able to see galaxies even earlier in the history of our universe, where they were just starting to form, and that will complement the kinds of galaxies and the kinds of information that Hubble uh, sees for us. So, you know, we talk about the universe being about 13.8 billion years old, which we can glean from various different types of information about the universe, we're now seeing galaxies as they were forming from well within that first 0.8 of the 13.8 billion year history of the universe. We're really seeing the universe when it was basically in its childhood. And the Webb telescope will show us proto-galaxies, the very first generations of stars and gas kind of coalescing as gravity holds it together um, in the very first few hundred billion, hundred million years of, of the universe after its beginning. So uh, we're excited about that. Closer to home, the Webb telescope will also see into that, uh, deeper into that infrared part of the spectrum that allows us to see deeper into these nurseries of interstellar gas in our own galaxy where stars are forming and planets are forming and disks around those stars. And together, the Hubble telescope, which we anticipate will keep working for quite a few more years, and the Webb telescope will provide complementary information. For example, when we look at um, star-forming regions, the Hubble telescope will tell us something about emission in visible light and ultraviolet light. Webb telescope will give us the infrared part. That gives us a lot more information about what those baby stars are like as they form. And even more exciting, we're now, st we're now discovering that there are planets around other stars. We call those exoplanets because they're outside our solar system we can study something about their atmospheres and, and their composition of those atmospheres. Hubble tells us something about the atoms and molecules that emit their light in visible wavelengths and, in, and ultraviolet wavelengths. The Webb telescope gives us information from molecules in these exoplanet atmospheres that emit in infrared wavelengths. So then we can get a whole spectrum of information. We can know whether some of these exoplanets have water vapor, whether they have oxygen, um, other kinds of things that we really want to know about exoplanets and what they're like. So uh, complementary science is the name of the game as we look forward to the James Webb Space Telescope and we think about how it will work in complement to the Hubble Space Telescope in the coming years. I mean, you blew my mind in about seven different times in the past couple of minutes. <laughs> Um, so I'm not entirely sure where to go with that. <laughs> um, d the fact that you can point a telescope towards an exoplanet and look at the way that light passes through the tiny sliver of an atmosphere and be able to then tell what that atmosphere is made out of, um, uh, I, that blows my mind. Well, the Hubble Space Telescope was actually the, the pioneer of this method of studying exoplanets. 
to study exoplanets, you have to be kind of like a detective because you have to use indirect methods to detect them in the first place and even to study much about them. I mean, we would all like to simply point a camera at another planet outside our solar system and take a nice picture, but these things are really small. They are tiny objects orbiting bright things we call stars, and they get lost in the glare of the star. So astronomers have to use indirect methods to detect them, to detect exoplanets. The first ones were detected not by seeing the planet, but by seeing how the star it was orbiting would wobble in its orbit. And that's because there's a gravitational mutual tug between a planet and its parent star. So even if you can't see the planet, you can see the star wobbling a little bit in its position as the planet orbits around it. They're both actually orbiting what's called the center of mass between the two. So the first exoplanets were detected by noticing stars periodically wobbling um, in their position and determining from that what mass of planet you would need to create that much of a wobble. And then the idea of transiting exoplanets was explored. That is, certain planets happen to orbit their parent star in a plane that's along our line of sight as we're looking toward that star. And that means every time the planet passes in front of its parent star, it blocks out a little bit of that starlight from our view. So even if we can't see the planet we can see the starlight dimming just a little bit periodically as the planet orbits in front of it. Those transit observations were used by the Kepler Space Telescope to discover uh, hundreds of new exoplanet candidates. In fact, we have thousands of them, um, of systems simply by looking at the parent star and seeing them dim periodically and then doing follow-up observations with other telescopes to really confirm whether or not what's causing that is, is an exoplanet. The Hubble telescope has taken this one step farther, which is using transits to, to study the composition of the atmospheres of some of these exoplanets. So when a planet passes in front of its parent star, not only does it block out some of the starlight, but some of the starlight passes through that outer rim of the planet's atmosphere along the outer limb on its way to us. It passes through, and that atmosphere, depending on what's in the planet's atmosphere, will absorb some of that light. If there are molecules and atoms in the atmosphere, it will absorb light at very certain colors or frequencies. So a spectroscopist can take that light and spread it out into its constituent colors, kind of like using a prism, and you can see the very particular color band where light is missing because atoms or molecules in that exoplanet atmosphere have absorbed it. And so we have, uh, we have instruments on the Hubble Space Telescope that are what we call spectrographs. They don't take the pretty pictures. They simply take the light and spread it out into its constituent frequencies or colors like a prism and see where there are very particular color bands missing. And that pattern tells us what's been munched out. And that tells us what kinds of atoms or molecules are in the exoplanet atmosphere. So Hubble was the first observatory to be used to determine the composition of an exoplanet atmosphere. And now this has grown into a huge astronomical industry, if you will, of, of using telescopes, Hubble and other telescopes, to do spectroscopic analysis of the atmospheres of exoplanets to learn something about their composition. And here we're excited about this new Webb Space Telescope that's going to do that as well, but in the far infra, in the sorry, in the mid infrared part of the electromagnetic spectrum, where we can do we can determine even more molecules and kinds of diagnostics that tell us more about what's in these exoplanet atmospheres. We want to know whether planets outside of our solar system are similar or di or different to planets inside our solar system, and of course we'd like to know if any of them are habitable for life. We don't yet uh, um, 
have the technology, sadly, to visit planets that are outside our solar system and take samples of their atmospheres or their their dirt, if they have dirt or things like that, but we can observe them remotely. And so that is what we're trying to perfect are these techniques of taking remote information like the spectrum of light from an exoplanet atmosphere and determining from that what's in that atmosphere. And then from there, we can discern whether or not there might be habitability for life. Like we know we need water for life as we know it. So could there be water on one of these exoplanets? Or even signs of biological activity. We know that if we looked at planet Earth from a distance, we would see oxygen in the atmosphere. And that's evidence of, of the um, work of plant life on our Earth's surface, generating oxygen. This kind of, of uh, process, photosynthesis, um, tells us that there's an ongoing biological uh, um, uh, community, if you will, on planet Earth. Otherwise, all the oxygen in the atmosphere would disappear through reactions. But the fact that we have continuing refreshed oxygen tells us that there's biological activity on our planet. If we saw oxygen, as well as other indicators in the atmospheres of other planets, that would be a clue that there might be biological activity there. So, we're taking steps. The Webb telescope will give us more information than Hubble, and then future telescopes beyond Webb will be able to discern whether there are Earth-like planets with truly uh, Earth-like compositions in their atmospheres in, in uh, star systems around our galactic neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So the Webb is the next step in a whole series of future telescopes that astronomers are planning. Oh, that's exciting Yeah, and my... And and doing a little bit of research on the James Webb and you know comparing it to the Hubble and and you know I've always been a huge fan of the Hubble Space Telescope and um you know I have little models of it growing up when you know I'm a huge Lego fan and when Lego released the new space shuttle uh, model uh, in the spring the one that had um, Hubble with it I was really excited because I could got to build the space shuttle and Hubble. Um, <laughs> and so, but doing those comparisons, I then saw just now the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope that's in production, I guess, right? And yes, so so the the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope is named after you guessed it, Nancy Grace Roman, who uh, was just a phenomenal pioneer in uh, the history of NASA's foray into space astronomy. She was the first chief astronomer at NASA headquarters. And back in the 1970s, she was the one who advocated the idea of NASA building a space telescope. Now, scientists had been talking about this for even decades, uh, about what you could do if you could put a telescope in space. But to actually get it implemented required someone within NASA headquarters to champion this idea. And she did, she got it started within NASA headquarters back in the 1970s. And that ended up being the Hubble Space Telescope. So she's sometimes referred to as the mother of Hubble. Um, She passed away just recently, but she remained an active, interested uh, scientist for all of her life. So this telescope now that's being developed is named in her honor, the, the Roman Space Telescope, and it will, again, complement these other space telescopes. It will complement the Webb Space Telescope, which will launch sooner, and the Hubble Space Telescope, which is already operating. The Roman Telescope will be an infrared telescope, uh, you know, like the Webb Telescope is, is an infrared space telescope. But the difference is that Roman is going to have a much wider field of view. That means it will see a much wider swath of the sky than either Hubble or the Webb telescope can do. If, if Hubble wants to survey a wide, wider region of the sky, it has to do hundreds of little postage stamp observations and stitch it all together. And uh, we've done that. We've done, for example, a a Hubble observation of a big part of the disk of the Andromeda galaxy, which is our nearest big spiral galaxy. 
And we learned a lot by stitching together little postage stamp observation after observation. Um, this is a project led, led by Professor uh, Julianne Del Canton and her team called the, the FAT program, which, um, <laughs> which is, is spelled P-H-A-T, but it, it's, a, it's a Hubble Andromeda Treasury program to look at stars in this nearby galaxy. But it's taken a long time the Roman telescope can do this wide swath of the sky with just, you know, one exposure because it can see such a wider swath of the sky. And the other thing, the other kind of science that it's really being designed to do is to study the distribution of galaxies. Hubble's really good at looking at an individual galaxy and telling us a lot of information. But if you want to know how hundreds or thousands of galaxies are distributed around the sky, it takes a long time. My favorite image from Hubble is called the Ultra Deep Field. I don't know if oh, you've yeah. seen that, but it, it, it was a product of just pointing Hubble in one direction of the sky and collecting faint light over many days. And the product is this collection of little blotches of light that you might think are stars, but each one of them is actually another galaxy, like, like, like or unlike the Milky Way, each one that can contain billions of stars. And so if you imagine that extrapolated over the entire sky, you get a sense of how rich our universe is. But as wonderful as that deep field is, and you can see thousands of galaxies, you can't get a sense of how galaxies are really distributed across wider swaths of the sky because it is a small field of view. The Roman telescope, which should be launched later this decade, will have a wide field of view that can see how the patterns of galaxies have taken shape throughout cosmic history. We know that galaxies um, are distributed in more of a honeycomb fashion. There are regions where there aren't many galaxies. We call them voids. Voids, And then there are regions where there are kind, quite a few galaxies collected together. We know now that throughout the billions of years of cosmic history, there's been kind of a tug of war between gravity, which is trying to pull things together, and that's creating galaxies and even clusters of galaxies that are held together by their mutual gravitational pull, and something that's pushing things apart. We now know that the universe is not only expanding, but that expansion is, is getting faster. And so something is, is kind of pushing out, um, and we're calling that dark energy because we don't really know what it is. It may be some repulsive aspect of gravity. Over time, this tug-of-war between dark energy pushing things apart and the matter pulling things together through what we would call traditional gravitational pull, has resulted in the distribution of galaxies that we now have today. We would like to understand that better, and the Roman Space Telescope is going to help us see how galaxies have been distributed across space throughout cosmic time, and then the Webb Telescope and the Hubble Telescope can help us hone in on very specific galaxies and small clusters to give us more detail. So again, we use different observatories in complement because they each have their own kind of unique scientific niche of what they can tell us. And together we get a much better, bigger picture of what's going on in the universe. Um, we also use telescopes on the ground that are, are getting more and more um, sophisticated in what they can do to complement telescopes in space. So all of these facilities work in complement. So I'm curious, Jennifer, you know, with the Hubble and you, especially you bringing up the ultra deep field and, you know, before that there was, so the Hubble deep field and then the Hubble ultra deep field, right. And they were both just unbelievable to look at. I remember when they both came out, and I cannot remember the years, obviously, but I do remember, I think the Hubble or the first one I was able to use when I was a high school science teacher. Um, but it was just unbelievable to look at these things. Will there be with the James Webb Space Telescope, for example, will we, is there, will there be an effort to kind of point it in the same direction, you know, that Hubble has been pointing at and 
look at either the same areas that Hubble's looked at to see what else we could get from that location. And then also, too, will there be something kind of like the Hubble Ultra Deep Field with the James Webb? Like, is there going to be, do you know, or is that just anything is possible? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the main drivers for the, the James Webb Space Telescope was this desire to look at these deep fields like Hubble has done, but to be able to see galaxies that are even more distant than what Hubble can pick up. The, these distant galaxies, of course, we're not seeing them as they actually are right this minute. We're seeing them as they were when the light began its trek from those galaxies right. across space to our telescope. And for some of these galaxies in these deep fields, those galaxies are billions of what we call light years away. A light year is a unit of distance. It's the distance that light travels in a year. So when we see a galaxy that's billions of light years away, we're seeing it as it was billions of years back in time. And as that light has traveled across space to get to our telescope, it's traveled through space that is actually expanding. That creates what we call a redshifting effect. The light uh, that we receive is redder than it was when it started its, its journey. And sometimes that redshifting goes all the way into the infrared part of the spectrum, even beyond what Hubble can pick up. So for these most distant galaxies, we anticipate that a lot of them are shining most of their light in, 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 a, in a wavelength that's become shifted into the infrared part of the spectrum that only the Webb telescope will pick up. It will pick up galaxies and see them that, that the Hubble deep fields haven't seen. So we anticipate seeing even more galaxies with the Webb telescope than Hubble has seen. And yet Hubble can see galaxies in ways that the web won't be able to see. Hubble can see uh, the ultraviolet light from the more nearby galaxies. And we can then put a picture together as, how, as to how galaxies have changed over time by comparing those early infant galaxies that the Webb telescope will pick up with the galaxies that Hubble can see uh, brightly in ultraviolet light that won't be as bright in the infrared light that Webb can see. And then all those intermediate galaxies that we pick up, the infrared light from the Webb telescope and the visible and ultraviolet light from Hubble. And we can put all that information together to make deep fields like we've never had before. So yes, we're going to see the same deep fields uh, that Hubble has seen. Webb will look at and pick up more galaxies. And then other deep fields Webb will look at um, and we will, we're already doing preparatory science with Hubble, knowing that we want to use Webb for the things that Webb uniquely can do and, and use it in complement with what Hubble can already do. So we're already doing what we call preparatory observations with Hubble that make sure that we understand everything we can about these different fields of galaxies with Hubble so that we know just the kinds of things we want to learn with JWST and we use that telescope as efficiently as we can once it gets going. You know, the Webb telescope um, is anticipated as we record this to be launching in, in late December, but it'll take several months for it to get out where it will be perched a million miles more and more from Earth. That's a lot farther away than Hubble is, but it's being put that far away from Earth to keep it very cold so that it can pick up the faintest infrared light from these distant galaxies and from these closer-to-home star-forming regions. So we won't be getting science images from the web for quite a few months as it makes this trek out into uh, a much more distant part of space than the Hubble telescope. So we're going to have to be patient, but I'm looking forward to those first science images coming in um, in, the, in the middle part of 2022, if all goes well. So when we do start to get those images, wow. um, if they're in the infrared, uh, what will they look like to us humans? Will they have to be artificially colored? or? Yes. So, so the, the Webb telescope will see red light that we can see, but then beyond red into the infrared that we cannot see. And the Hubble itself also sees light we cannot see. So Hubble picks up visible light that we can see, but Hubble picks up ultraviolet light that we can't see, and also near-infrared light that we cannot see. 
So already with Hubble images, we have to um, give them colors that our eyes can see so that we can have hmm. a picture to look at. So for Hubble images, if you read carefully, it will tell you whether what you're seeing is visible light or if it's, for example, near-infrared light, it will be given a red hue so that you can see that part of the spectrum showing up in, in the, the, eyes your, the colors your eyes can see. Um, we usually label the things on Hubble images so you know exactly what the color coding is. The Webb telescope images will be likewise sort of translated into colors that we can see in pictures and photographs so that um, the, the, the part of the infrared uh, spectrum that is closer to visible light will be colored a little less red, maybe even blue, and the part of the infrared spectrum that the web will pick up that's deeper into the infrared part of the spectrum will be colored very red. And so uh, you'll, you'll see probably a, a, um, a legend you know, next to these James Webb images that tell you the range of colors that it's actually picking up and what that has been translated to in the colors that have been put into the image. It's, it's not... Um, just any color goes these usually what happens is you try to make the color range that's on the image as close to the span of color as the actual information is but just transferred over into a band that our eyes mm. can see so yes you have to do something or else you couldn't see it um, with our eyes looking at a picture uh, because we can't see infrared light. And the same is already true with Hubble images that go beyond just the visible light of, of the spectrum. I'm just in awe, <laughs> to be honest. It's just, I've always loved astronomy. And, you know, it's something that I've always just been passionate about. Um, what is it that you're most excited about? And I'm sorry, I just, you know, in listening, you talk about it, you may have talked some already, but with this, the Webb Space Telescope, the Nancy Grace Roman and Telescope, you know, all these different ones that are coming, what is it that you're most excited about with these things? I think I'm most excited about what you might call two extremes of the spatial scale of, of the universe. Um, with these new telescopes like the, the Webb Space Telescope and then later the Roman Space Telescope, I'm excited about getting even a better understanding of how the universe we live in has become hospitable over billions of years for, for life. We can actually, you know, look at the earliest galaxies and compare them to galaxies like our own Milky Way and, and intermediate time galaxies as well. And we can see how they've changed over these billions of years of time. We can't follow an individual galaxy as it's changed, but we can look at the whole population at these different epochs of time, and we can tell that galaxies have merged together and become bigger over time. We think our own Milky Way is the project, product of mergers. And we can tell that stars have come and gone in these galaxies. Massive stars don't live that long, and so they, they um, produce heavier elements that we need for planets and life. Um, as they shine, they, they, they go through a, pro a process called fusion that creates heavier elements. And then when the massive stars become unstable and run out of fuel, they explode and disperse that material into these interstellar clouds where the next generations of stars form. So we know there's been several generations of stars building upon prior generations. And all that process does is to create heavier elements that enable things like planets to form around stars. So in our own galaxy, when stars are still forming, we see them forming with disks of dusty debris and planets forming around them. We know that that's only possible because of previous generations of stars in the galaxy that have created heavier elements. So as, as we look at this process of the whole universe, the whole cosmos becoming more hospitable to life over eons of time, um, that fascinates me. And I'm excited with these new telescopes to get 
a, a greater sense of how that process has worked. Um, and that personally feeds my, my faith, my sense of awe for how our universe has been endowed with what we need uh, for, for life and eventually the ability to have these kind of conversations to exist and to think about our purpose and our existence and to contemplate um, greater meaning. So that excites me. And then much closer to home, I, I really am excited about observations within our solar system. I, I like the idea that we, with these new telescopes, can also study details about planets and moons in our own solar system. Um, and also that we're sending probes, uh, you know, the, 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 the kind of space exploration that got me excited in astronomy in the first place were, were these probes that humans have constructed and sent out to send back images of, of other planets and their moons and our solar system. I still think that's the, 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 one of the greatest things humans have done and can do if we put our heads together and, and do constructive uh, international cooperations. And so I'm excited about probes that will go to places like Europa in our own solar system in the coming years that's an ice-covered moon that we know has a water ocean underneath. I'd like to know what's, what that water's like, you know. Um, and there are um, missions that are already sampling the region around Jupiter and have, have probed um, the environment of Saturn. These are things that excite me. And so I'm looking forward also to... Uh, probe and telescope studies of our own solar system in the coming years. Um, that's our own backyard, and, and we can learn a lot about even our own planet um, by studying our uh, sister planets in our own solar system. So those are the things I'm most excited hmm. about. You think we're going to find life on Venus? <laughs> Venus is harsh. Um, uh, Venus is, is hot. And, uh, you know, really inhospitable to life as we know it. Now, you can say, well, what if there's life that's not as we know it? But, uh, you know, we've all watched a lot of science fiction. <laughs> but the, the trouble is we have to know how to identify life. What is life? And so we have to start with what we know, which is life, even in the most extreme conditions on planet Earth. And, uh, you know, what, what are the, the conditions, even the most extreme ones, that in which life can thrive? We, we, there's a whole field called astrobiology right now that's, that's a new field, but it's a very vibrant field where scientists are trying to understand what are the, even the extreme conditions in which life can exist in our own planet Earth, and then how would that translate to environments in space, either in interstellar space or on other planets or other star systems, and then how would we identify it as life? You know, that's really the tough question, especially if you can't go someplace physically, you can only observe remotely. How would you know that, that's, that there's life there? That's a hard question. And uh, the field of astrobiology is trying to address all those questions. One of the things I like about astronomy right now is it's very interdisciplinary. It's not that, you know, yeah. astronomy is separate from geology which is separate from physics which is separate from chemistry no all these things are being used together now including biology to try to understand environments of other star systems and planets and uh, you know how these conditions of stellar radiation and geology and atmospheres and chemistry work together and how that might affect even biology. So everything is very interdisciplinary now. And I just encourage uh, people to get excited about space exploration, even if that's not your professional field. There's so much you can learn and enjoy, even if it's not your occupation, by paying attention online to what's going on. Hubble Space Tel Telescope images are all freely available online. Um, you can go to the website nasa.gov slash Hubble. And learn about it, or also the galleries at hubblesite.org, and uh, see any of these amazing images I've been talking about. The other telescopes that are um, large in space or on the ground also have magnificent websites with images, so you can learn a lot um, just by paying attention online. And I hope everybody uh, uh, also encourages young people to go into 
science fields or to, to realize that science is relevant to all walks of life, not just if you're thinking about becoming professionally involved in space, but if you're thinking about just about anything, science is relevant to what you do. Science is relevant to our food, to communications, to our health, um, to our exploration of oceans and mountains, even on this planet. So I hope everybody takes a sense, a, a time to just look around at the natural world right around you. Um, be appreciative of the wildlife and the trees and the natural world and appreciate science as a way of, of studying that natural world, but, but uh, keep a sense of wonder and awe. That's how I would encourage everyone to walk away from a program mm. like this. Well, thank you so much for that. Yeah, and I'll give a, a great ending. I'll give a plug for uh, we did an episode on on astrobiology uh, back in January that you all should mm-hmm. check out if you haven't had a chance to read Adam's book. Uh, uh, what is it? Living with Tiny Aliens: The Image of God in the Anthropocene. Right? Am I getting that subtitle right? He's not here. He's one of our co-hosts. He's not with us today um, to plug his own book. But thank you so much for the the wonder, the awe, the inspiration, the hope. Um, there's a lot to get excited about. Yeah, thank you, Jennifer. My pleasure. I'm glad thank you're Jennifer. interested, and, and uh, I'm sure there'll be many more conversations to come. Absolutely. Great. 